All right, so a wee series here, which is The Great Philosophers. I'm going to go through a bunch of them and just give you my thoughts. This is not any kind of major in-depth work. It's just a, uh, a skim and think, I guess we could put it that way. We're going to start with the Buddha, who of course lived about 560 to 480 BC. And, I mean, the major quote, which we'll start with, this sort of release from suffering stuff, is the Buddha says, uh, it is just thirst or craving which gives rise to repeated existence, which is bound up with the impassioned appetite and which seeks fresh pleasure now, here and now there. And so I guess the Buddha as a whole doesn't really care that much about questions of metaphysics or epistemology, doesn't care how human beings evolved, where life came from, and he would consider those questions mostly unanswerable, and his major purpose was, of course, just the reduction of suffering. Removal of suffering, I guess, to some degree, but certainly on the reduction of suffering. And he considers considers himself to be an empiricist insofar as he says, you don't just accept what I say as a matter of faith, but test my uh, theories against your own experience. So he, of course, was in a world with very little control over life, very little control over political environment, very little control over disease. I guess some control had been created against predation, but it was a pretty rough world. And of course, the majority of people had nothing close to anything that we would consider to be sort of modern human rights, uh, freedom of association, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of the economy, private property rights, and so on. Uh, most people, of course, were, were serfs tied to the land or slaves, or uh, they didn't have any of the kind of freedoms, or really many of the kind of freedoms that we would imagine today. And so because people were bullied and controlled and manipulated and threatened and punished and all that, they, they suffered in enormous amount because they were subjected to the vagaries of the weather, the vagaries of illness, the vagaries of random wars and so on there was uh, a lot of suffering. And, of course, if the goal of philosophy is happiness, then suffering can be, doesn't necessarily mean is, but suffering can be your enemy if your goal is happiness, for reasons I'm sure that we understand, that some suffering is necessary for happiness. You have to go get your teeth scraped if you want to avoid tooth decay. And so, yeah, I mean, you have to exercise when you don't feel like it. You have to not eat things that taste pleasant. You know, there's some suffering or unpleasantness that will occur or is natural as, as life in life to, to help us achieve a longer-term happiness. So if you reject all suffering, that's rank hedonism, and that leads you off a cliff because you think that the way you avoid suffering is to have no self-restraint because you view self-restraint as suffering and then, you know, you eat too much, and you drink too much, and uh, you don't take care of yourself, and then you suffer through illness, right? So a small amount of suffering, or a relatively predictable and controllable amount of suffering, is necessary. You know, I was I was doing my uh, cardio workout tonight, and I did you know, nothing major, 13 minutes, uh, 35 minutes, sorry, 35 minutes on a bike machine. And I was just thinking to myself, man, if if this wasn't good for me, you couldn't pay me to do it, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess it's kind of nice. After you exercise, I, I always like that feeling after you exercise and you've had a nice shower or bath and you're sort of clean and you've worked out and your muscles are throbby and all of that. 
But, you know, it's a fairly unpleasant experience to go through. And I do it just because, you know, I want to sort of respect my body and, and thank my body for keeping me alive, particularly through cancer and all that. So I, you know, you, you, you wouldn't normally do that. And I've always had this sort of vague theory that there was some sadist who just liked to scrape people's teeth because it was uncomfortable and unpleasant for them. And only later did he accidentally find out it helped them. Of course, that's not true, but it's just a funny thought. So, yeah, there there is suffering in life and you aim to get the medium, the, sorry, you, you aim to get the least amount of suffering. And the least amount of suffering is to absorb some some suffering so you avoid larger suffering, right? So, uh, you know, so people who want to avoid, I say men in particular, it could be different now, but men who want to avoid the suffering of rejection will avoid asking women out. But then you have the suffering of loneliness, which is far greater than the suffering of rejection. And the suffering of rejection is bad for your vanity, right? It's bad for your vanity and it's bad for your confidence. And your confidence might be misplaced, right? I mean, self-esteem is not always a good gauge of how good at making, uh, evaluating situations and making decisions you are. Uh, for me, I always felt that I deserved, you know, the very best women a woman in the universe, and I, of course, believe that I got her eventually in, in, and be married now for 20-plus years, but I would ask out women who were, you know, very popular, very pretty, very smart, very athletic and all that, you know, top-tier women, and sometimes they would say yes, and sometimes they would say no, and it was suffering, and the suffering was to find the right woman, right? You go through the wrong, wrong women, and some of the women, like the women who say no, but aren't the right women, are nicer to you than the women who say yes, but aren't the right women, because the women who say no uh, don't have you waste time, money, and resources, and energy in uh, a pursuit of a relationship that's not going to go w work out, because they just don't say yes in the first place. So so anyway, but for, for the Buddha, like life is suffering. That's like, the, he's got four truths, right? So the first truth, 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 like Keith, the first truth is that life is suffering. Right, so his argument is, you know, you look around the world, you're going to see frustration, tension, anxiety, misery, pain, all, all around that. And the suffering is, of course, physical and, and mental. And the best you can hope for is to get a few glimpses of happiness and then you just return to the average general turmoil. And so the, the question, of course, is where does the suffering come from? Now... I want to introduce you, I'm going to borrow this term from Nietzsche, although I use it slightly differently, actually quite a bit differently, which is the concept of the question of the slave morality. Slave morality, oh, slave morality. So yes, let's take a simple example, right? The world is, uh, is suffering, and let's say you live in, uh, I don't know, Texas or, or Florida or whatever, right? And you live in Texas or Florida 500 years ago. And, you know, it's really hot. And it's, you know, it's unpleasant. It's so hot. And so what should a philosopher do? Well, a philosopher, of course, to help people alleviate suffering, should promote freedom, liberty, property rights, free trade, capitalism, and all these kinds of things. And then what happens is you start to get people selling you ice. And then you start to get ice boxes. And then you start to get... Uh, uh, refrigerators and you start to get freezers and you like so the way that you alleviate that suffering is to promote virtue morality thou shalt not steal private property rights 
free trade, free markets, all that kind of good stuff. That's what you should do as a philosopher. Now, you do that because it's the right thing to do, it's a moral thing to do, and it's, you know, theft can never be universally preferable behavior and so on. And So you promote free speech, you promote private property, you promote free trade, and then people's suffering diminishes over time. Because suffering is a market opportunity, obviously, right? So if uh, someone is really, really hot, then selling them a fan uh, or an air conditioner is going to alleviate that suffering to some degree. And so suffering is solved by people in the free market wanting to alleviate your suffering, and the free market is necessary for the free flow of goods and services to alleviate human suffering. I'm doing a silly example of, of heat, although it's fairly serious for people in hot climates. Uh, another example, of course, is uh, cold, right? It's really cold in certain parts of the world, certain times of the year, so you need heat. And where do you get your heat from? Well, you get your heat from uh, matches, and uh, you get your, your heat from logs, and you get your heat from stoves and chimneys, and, and you name it. And so you need a free market so that where people are cold and have things to trade, somebody has more food than they need and somebody has more wood than they need, then they can trade for that. And then through that, you get specialization. Through that, you get automation. Through that, you get increased productivity. And through that, you start to get wealth. So yes, the world is suffering. And there's two things you can do in the world. You can either promote freedom or what you can do, and this is where the slave morality comes in, or what you can do is you can say, well, you can't change your circumstances, so you're going to have to change your attitude. Change your attitude, young man. You're going to have to change your attitude. Now, that's a slave morality. So the slave is ordered around. He has no liberty. He has no freedom. He has no property. He has no um, marriage often. He has no children. He's just a robot drone surf to be ordered around by people who will whip and beat and sell him if he doesn't do exactly what they want when they want it. So he has no capacity, no practical capacity, to achieve any kind of freedom. Right? He has no practical capacity to achieve any kind of freedom. So what does the slave do? Well, he tries to remove his suffering by changing his conceptions. You can't change his environment, so he changes his conceptions, right? And and we've all had this in, in minor areas, right? I mean, if you are trying to concentrate on something and there's a loud noise coming from outside, I don't know, someone's doing something or a car alarm or something, then you're like, okay, I've got to concentrate. I've got to put some headphones on. I'm, you know, I can't stop the sound from happening, but I can change my approach. I can concentrate on something different. I can whatever, right? I can do something that's going to change my uh, my thoughts. And if you've ever been stuck with chronic pain, uh, then you know there's mental things that you can do if you can't alleviate the pain, uh, or you don't want to use you know obviously too many drugs. Then there's things that you can do to take your mind off it and and so on. Right. And again, we've all all done this. You have a really bad breakup and you're really unhappy, and your friend says, "Let's go out." to a bar and have some drinks and do some dancing or let's go to an arcade or whatever it's going to be and you're like okay that will take my mind off right so you can't change the breakup you can't change being miserable but you can at least well I guess you can change being miserable by focusing on something else so where you have no capacity to change your circumstances the great temptation is to change your mind and listen it's perfectly understandable if you're a slave in the Roman Empire and you have no chance for freedom and no chance for any 
independence or happiness or choice, you might as well fall prey to the fantasy that, well, after death, I'll be the master and they'll be in hell. Like, my masters will be in hell and I'll be the master. I he used last becomes first, the meek shall inherit the earth, and so on. So you have these revenge fantasies after death. And when people are in a state of tyranny, a philosopher who says, here's how to change your mindset in order to remove suffering or alleviate suffering is welcomed by the smart ruler because the smart ruler will then say, okay, well, the people will then blame themselves in a sense for not being happy rather than blaming me and work for freedom rather than blaming the tyranny. They'll say, well, the reason I'm suffering is because I have the wrong ideas, the wrong mindset. So let's understand the Buddha comes in a place where people had no freedoms. They can't change their circumstances. So he comes along and says, okay, you can work on your mind. You can work on your mindset. You can change your opinions about things. And because you have more, con- when you're in a state of tyranny, you have more control over your inner life than you have o- out of, over your outer circumstances. So it's very tempting. And, and that's what he came along. And I think that's why he became famous. Of course, the problem is it doesn't solve the problem in the long run, right? It's like heroin for a toothache, right? It, it doesn't solve the problem. In fact, makes it worse. Because what you need is freedom. What you need is property rights. What you need is a free market and a small to no government. But if everyone just focuses on managing their own internal states of mind, then they don't work to change their society. So it's something that gives people immediate relief, but it causes a long, long-term long stagnation. So, all right. So what does the Buddha say? He says okay, why is there just this continual conveyor belt of of suffering with the occasional glimpses of of happiness, right? He says, well, because we don't understand ourselves and the world. He says, look, you think you have some kind of core essence, and you also think that things in the world have essences of their own, uh, core essences, identities that are unchangeable. And he says, but that's not, that's not how the world is. The truth about the world is not that you have an essence that is unchanging and that things in the world have an essence that's, in, that's unchanging. Everything, including yourself, is impermanence. It's flux. It's transience. There's no defined essential, eternal core to yourself. And there's no fundamental, eternal essence to things in the world. So because we fundamentally misunderstand the world by thinking that we, as an object with a permanent essence, are interacting with things in the world that are objects with permanent essences, because we misunderstand that, we're living in a delusion of identity and essence and permanence. I know this is all sounds kind of flaky, but this is kind of what he's he's trying to communicate. So we try to grab on to happiness and the happiness we believe will be a permanent part of our nature, but there's nothing permanent about our nature. And we pursue happiness by attempting to gain or achieve or control objects or people in the world because we think that the objects and things in the world have an essence and have value. And once we achieve the wealth or the fame or the success or whatever it is, 
then that's going to make us happy, but it always fades. So an example I would give is if you have a lock and a key, right? You can try the key in the lock. And if the key doesn't work, you try another key if you got a bunch of keys and you know one of them works, right? So the, the Buddha would say, to paraphrase something like, so you think that you're putting keys into a lock, you turn the key, the lock opens, and you get happiness. And then you get to walk through the doorway and live in, in happiness. So we're just sitting there trying these keys, trying these keys, trying to get into this realm or this world or this house of happiness, the happy house, right? The bouncy castle, the happy house. And try the keys, try the keys, try the keys. And he said, but the problem is that the lock is made of sand and the keys are made of sand. So we're basically just jamming wet sand into wet sand and thinking that we can turn a lock, but because nothing is permanent, right? The key, which is our essence and our desire to control things, is sand. And you, you pick up sand and it you know, you imagine you the shape of a, uh, a key, wet sand in the shape of a key. You pick it up and, you know, it's going to fall apart and it's going to drip and, and it's going to crumble. And then when you try and put it in a turn, it doesn't go in. It's just sand hitting sand. So we pick up this thing. We think it's a key, but it's not. There's nothing permanent about it. It just crumbles and fragments. And then we think that there's a lock. We open that lock, open the door, go into the happy house and stay there forever. And all we're doing is mashing one impermanent thing, which is sand, against another impermanent thing, which is sand. And that's if, if you spend your whole life trying to open a sand lock with a sand key, well, you'd get pretty frustrated. Now, every now and then, that you, you might think you hear a click or something might appear to go in. You're like, oh, I've got to open the key. But that just makes the unhappiness that comes afterwards even worse. So it's not, it's not going to work. So that's, that's his sort of first, first truth. Um, now, the second truth that the Buddha talks about is this endless attempt to use a sand key to open a sand lock traps us in this completely Groundhog Day endless cycle of, of suffering, right? This is the birth and the rebirth. And when you get reborn, you still don't have any kind of essence to yourself. You don't have any kind of permanent substance or enduring substance to yourself because there is no such thing as that. And we think we have an identity and we think we have this essence, but we're just like a, a, an ecosystem or just this, like you think of, of cloud shadows across a field or, or a landscape, like rolling fields, you these cloud shadows. It's just the clouds are shifting, the sun is shifting, uh, even the, the trees and the grass and the grasslands are shifting, and so you have light changing, wind blowing the clouds, the clouds are changing, and the wheat is, is flowing and changing, and so we think, we look at these permanent shadows, and we, we look at these shadows, and we think that we're looking at something permanent, but we're not, right, because so many factors, like the wind, the sun, the clouds, the the grasslands, it's all in flux, it's all in change, and we're trying to stop this and, and have a shape that stays, and nothing is going to stay. It's going to go from one day to the next, and it's going to go from day to night, sunny to cloudy, uh, it's going to go from sunny, the moon is going to wax and wane, and all of that. So, because we are trying to imagine that 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 there was a, uh, you were trapped in, in a, a, a terrible place, and if you jumped into a hole, uh, that you could escape that place. But the hole is actually just a shadow cast by clouds on a sunny day. And you'd be forever chasing that 
hole, you'd never be able to jump down that hole even if you reached it because we're just doing the wrong thing and this is why we get the cycles of suffering. Now, the third truth, right? So first truth, life is suffering. Second truth, you keep trying to grasp at these things. This is endless cycle of suffering, birth and rebirth. The third truth is, okay, how do we, how do we get out? Well, if you saw a crazy person trying to open a sand lock with a sand key, what would you tell them to do? Stop doing that. It's never going to work. It's only going to give you a momentary flash of illusory happiness where you think somehow you're going to get through this sand lock into the happy house. You must stop doing it. You must stop doing it. Stop trying to grab onto things that have no essence and stop imagining that you, like so where I'm saying you use a sand key to open a sand lock to get into the happy house, another way of looking at it, which he says is equally crazy, is to imagine that you, your happiness, you are the lock and things that you grab, let's say you grab $1,000. Well, the $1,000 is just a sand key that you try and insert into your sand lock called your soul, turn it and become happy. Right, so you get this $1,000, right? And, but once you get the $1,000, you will get maybe a brief bit of happiness because you think the $1,000 is going to give you some more permanent sense of happiness. And then you simply return to your state, right? So you got, you're going out there, you're grabbing the sand lock called, the sand key called $1,000. You're trying to insert it into your sand lock, but it doesn't, it, it's never going to work. So stop looking for happiness through the pursuit and manipulation of things out there in the world, whether it's things or people. Oh, this great girl is going to go out with me. I'm super happy. Oh, I bought this house. It's really nice. I'm super happy. Oh, you know, I thought my car was broken uh, and I thought it was going to be $5,000 to fix it. It turns out it was a $50 part. I'm super happy, right? Or, you know, an example that, that could be used as well is you, uh, you know, you, you wake up and uh, you, you feel in a neutral mood and then you stub your toe on the way to the bathroom and you curse, right? And then you get to the bathroom and you think you're out of toothpaste. And, you know, your teeth are furry, you want to clean your mouth. Uh, but you manage to squeeze out just enough. You're like, yay, okay, that, that's good, fantastic, right? And then uh, you go downstairs and you find that the coffee for your cream is has gone off. And so you're upset again. It's like, oh, but then, no, I have some powdered coffee or I have some, like, little coffee I got from a restaurant in a little, like, little container cups. Okay, so I'm good, okay. So I have a coffee. Oh, that coffee's really good. And then you go to the mailbox and you open the mailbox and there's a letter there uh, from some tax agency and you're like, oh, no, that's bad, right? Oh, it's a bad thing. And then you open it and it's a refund. Oh, that's good, right? So you just go, like, up and down, up and down, up and down. And you can go, th- you, you know this, you, 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 you go through your day and, you know, there's, there's good or bad things that are occurring. You get a, a text message from a girl uh, you like and you're very happy, but then you read the text message and she says she's moving away and then you're unhappy. And then she says, but I have a friend I think would be perfect for you. Here's her picture. She's really interested in meeting you and the picture is attractive and you're like this. Oh, just up and down, up and down, up and down, right? And he says, this is like, everybody's just trying to grab these sand keys, put them in the sand locks, get into the happy house, or become the happy house, not going to work. So just stop being attached to the outcome. Stop trying to pursue and grasp that which has no essence. You might as well say, well, I'm really lonely, so I'm going to get married to a ghost. And you're saying, well, basically, that's everything and everyone that you could try and get happiness through. So, and, and 
that this rebirth thing, by the by, by the by, this rebirth thing is not good. It's not good, right? Uh, rebirth is is like whatever you do, don't get reborn. I mean, the rebirth thing is something which people are in pursuit of, right? I mean, so if you think you're going to live after death, that gives you some comfort. And he says, no, but thinking that you could live after death is just another one of these illusions that is going to cause your, your suffering. So the fourth truth is the Buddhist eightfold path, right? So the goal is to achieve this nirvana, this this happiness. And the eightfold path is uh, the right view, the right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So, I mean, of course, you know, Buddha gives rise to Buddhism, and is it a religion? Well, like most things that succeed, it's ambivalent or ambiguous, right? So the Buddha says there is no God, but the Buddha says that certain gods, or at least godlike beings, do exist, so halala, right? Uh, the Buddha the Buddha doesn't say you've got to accept this stuff on faith, although he doesn't provide any scientific proof for the ultimate non-essence of things. So he says, yeah, you know, test the claims against your own experience and so on, right? But the problem is, of course, that also has a confirmation bias. So if you do live this chaotic day where you bounce from happiness to frustration to anger to happiness to sadness because of every single piece of external stimuli, then, you know, obviously that's a bit of an unstable way to live. I mean, we all have that tendency, but it's a bit of an unstable way to live. And so the problem is, of course, the people who that is their experience will say, oh, yeah, what the Buddha says is true. But other people of a more even temperament and and even personality will say, well, that doesn't really seem that true to me. So it's one of these things that it's a key, to go back to the key analogy, but without using sand, it's a key that fits in certain people's personality locks and turns and opens. And they say, oh, yeah, this is true. And it's like, well, it's true because that's your experience for a variety of reasons. That's your, that's your experience of life. But it's not true because that's life, right? I mean, if you say to a manic depressive or somebody who this used to be called manic depressive, now I think it's called bipolar, like the ups and downs, the highs and lows. And you say, well, life is just a series of extreme highs and extreme lows. And the bipolar person will say, yes, that's exact. That's what life is. And it's like, no, that's your life. That's not life as a whole. You know, you, you talk to somebody who's in chronic pain and you say, well, life is just suffering and pain. And they say, yes, life is suffering and pain. And, uh, you know, it, it, but that's your life. That's not life as a whole, trying to define. So if you prove things, then people have to accept them independent of their personalities. If you present an aesthetic worldview, life is chaos. And then all the chaotic people with no control over their impulses or environment are like, yeah, life is chaos, right? And, um, you know, if if you say to pretty people, you know, uh, really, really attractive or hot people, particularly women, right? You say to really pretty women, you say, you know, you just ask the universe for things and the universe will provide. And they're like, yeah, that's true. The universe does seem to provide, for, you know, provide things to me. You know, when I want to move, like five guys show up and want to help me move. The universe does. So it's like, but that's not the same for an ugly man, right? <laughs> I mean, so it's, it's. Uh, you got to be these things that seem aesthetically true because they accord with people's experience is just reinforcing their experience and trapping them in that experience. You say to a chaotic person, "Life is chaos," and they're like, "Yeah, life is chaos." So then, there's no reason for them to change any more than they would try and change out of being a mammal into a reptile. Life is chaos, so it traps people because it's not empirically and objectively proven, and therefore it can't overcome the vagaries of personality. 
So, I mean, the other religious aspect is, you know, Buddhism has its moral code and then it has its goal of ultimate paradise-like transformation and that's, uh, you know, that's not philosophy, so that's more like religion, right? So what's the falsifiable element to the claim, right? If there's no falsifiable element, then it's not philosophy. Like It's like, like science. If there's no falsifiable, if it can't be falsified, it's not philosophy. If it can't be falsified, it's not science. So, you know, he says life is suffering. Okay, well, what does that mean? How would, you, how would you know whether that's true or false? How would you know whether that's accurate or inaccurate? How would, you, how would you disprove that? And, of course, if people are suffering, then I believe that they need more reason and virtue in their life, more philosophy, to oppose that suffering. But if people are suffering and then the Buddha comes along and says, well, yes, but life is suffering, then they say, oh, well, I guess I'm wise because I've accepted or I understand that life is suffering and therefore uh, I don't, there's nothing to do but manage my own relationship to suffering. So, and let's not even get to this repeatedly reborn stuff. Is that scientifically proven? It's really not. Okay, so now, of course, he's known as the Buddha, but his name was Siddhartha Gautama, born in 560 BC, and he was the son of a provincial ruler. So he was the son of the power-ruling elite, and so, you know, there was corruption and violence and brutality and dictatorship in his entire environment. And yes, there is suffering, right? There is suffering. Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, people are so terrified of philosophy. Because philosophy, I've said this, it's in my novel, uh, The Future, which you can get at freedomain.locals.com. So in my novel, I say, you know, people are like 10 minutes away from the truth about their lives. So people are like, one sentence away from the truth about their lives and they can continue on with their lives, blah, 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 blah. And then someone comes along and asks one simple question or makes one simple statement or one simple observation and boom, their entire lives completely change. And this can be for the better or this can be for the worse, right? So I was in hot pursuit of getting married. I bought the ring and, and proposed that I was going to get married to the wrong woman. And then a friend of mine's girlfriend at the time said, boy, you'd think someone about to get married would be a little happier. And it was just, boom, right? That's just half dozen words, dozen words or whatever. And it changed my life. Just little bits, little bits, little bits here and there, right? And uh, people are just terrified of these verbal landmines that can just completely upend their entire life. Just terrified of these things. And they know that there are always these, these mind sharks swimming in the middle distance that can just rush up and strike them down at any time. And it's just rough, man. It's brutal. And so I imagine that he was a sensitive soul who grew up with a significant amount of hidden suffering around him. So Siddhartha Gautama left his... Uh, I mean, it was originally northern India. Now I think it's part of Nepal. He left his home province to seek enlightenment, apparently at the age of 35, he was yoloing and um, arming under a fig tree and found enlightenment. And he became, uh, the Buddha is a synonym for the uh, awakened one, and he spent the remainder of his existence trying to teach people how to search for enlightenment and achieve enlightenment uh, through his teachings and so on. And, I mean, there are 
empirical and logical issues with this whole approach, right? So if life is suffering, then you're saying that the essence of life is suffering, but then you're saying life has no essence. You're saying, test my theories empirically or through your experience, but nobody can prove there's such a thing as rebirth. There are people who, I mean, there is suffering in life. Of course there is suffering in life. But it's not the essence of life. And if it is the essence of life, then it's because there are violations of morality in the society, like institutionalized violations of morality, right? Excessive control, uh, slavery, a serfdom, and so on, right? So there is a problem in society if a lot of people are suffering, like if there are gulags and if there's a holodomor or there's other kind of genocide or there's the Holocaust, okay, there's a massive amount of suffering in society. That's not the essence of life. That is a sign of deep evil in the land. And saying, well, suffering is the essence of life, he's saying that the suffering caused by evil, which is institutional and widespread, is the essence of life. So saying suffering is the essence of life is the same as saying evil is the essence of life since evil creates the most suffering. So saying X is the essence of life, but life has no essence, and saying that we live in this state, and, and you know, a lot of people who get into this uh, quantum physics nonsense, not that quantum physics is nonsense, but it has no relevance to sense-based philosophy because all quantum phenomena cancel each other out long before you get to the evidence of the senses. And so people are like, yeah, man, he was just presaging, you know, the, the chaos and, and flux of the subatomic blah, blah, blah. It's just like, no, no, he wasn't. He wasn't doing any of that. He wasn't doing any of that. He didn't have any clue about any of that. No, but he got into a universal... No, he didn't. No, he didn't. I mean, we couldn't have any stability in our existence. We couldn't be alive if things had no essence, right? Obviously, this is, I mean, even with Democritus in... in um, in ancient Greece, right? I mean, out of vague theory of atoms and so on. But until what, Niels Bohr and others came up with a theory of atoms in the 20th century, he's a pre-atomic guy. So saying that things don't have an essence and a permanence is saying things aren't composed of atoms. And, and it's really annoying to me because lots of brilliant people in India and... Because this belief, and of course not just in India, but because this belief became quite widespread that things have no essence and everything's a flux and everything's a chaos and, and nothing has any, any permanence or true nature, okay, so then you don't look for atoms. You don't look for morality uh, that is objective and universal and, and so on, right? Because morality doesn't have an essence, right? So in saying that you don't have an essence. Now, okay, personality changes, and I get all of that. There's flux and so on, but IQ is pretty permanent throughout life. But saying that things in the world don't have an essence is just factually incorrect. It's completely and totally factually incorrect because the essence is the atoms, and the essence, the essence is the universal laws, right? So matter and energy have an essence, the speed of light is a constant. A carbon atom is not a helium atom. An oxygen atom is not a, a hydrogen atom. And each of them have distinct properties that are permanent, fixed, foundational, and universal. Right? Water is the same everywhere. I mean, it has you know, H2O, right? The, the, the water has the same properties everywhere. Water freezes at the same temperature everywhere. Water boils at the same temperature everywhere. Gravity is a permanent feature of a life that tends to increase in our 50s, if I remember correctly. 
So it's just factually, completely and totally factually incorrect. Now, for me, you know, why have I not spent a huge amount of time delving deep into the Buddha? Because his entire metaphysics and epistemology is wrong and self-contradictory. There's no essence in life. The essence of life is suffering. Sorry, Siddhartha, you're going to have to pick a little bit of a lane there. And, you know, the other thing, too, is how do we know the guy, right? I mean, if you look at the suppression that I've been subjected to, it's because what I say is not particularly helpful to people in power. So if Buddhism has become big and has become spread, it's because, and I know that there are some rulers who are hostile to Buddhism and so on, right? But it's still a philosophy that is, you know, 2,500 uh, plus years old. How has it been allowed to survive and flourish? Well, because it's helpful to people in charge. It's very helpful to people in charge. Why is it helpful to people in charge? Because it says that the suffering that you experience is not caused by an evil doer that you can oppose. The suffering that you experience is caused by you thinking that the world has any kind of permanence. Well, it's offensive bullshit to say that. No, listen, if you're in a, a gulag with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, your suffering is not some essential nature of reality. It's not some weird, creepy impermanence bound into the fabric of space-time. It's because indoctrinated assholes are torturing you. So it does bother me, and I think with good reason, this, you know look inward and, and adjust your thinking and, and suffering is when you stop wanting things. It's like, I don't know, how about suffering stops when we find a way to stop rulers wanting power over us at the point of a sword from here to eternity. But apparently that was just a bridge too far. So yeah, this is my first thing on uh, Buddhism. You can let me know what you think. I look forward to your feedback and let me know if you want more and, and who else you would like in this series.